Lord, we ask you to bless this day. Just thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us and show us what you would want us to see through all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Chronicles chapter 10. We've gone through the nine chapters of genealogies. And now we're getting ready to go into some of the history of the kings of Judah. And so here we are, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and after his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hid him, and he was wounded of the archers. Then said Saul to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise on the sword and died. So Saul died, and his three sons and all his house died altogether. And when all the men of Israel that were in the valley saw that they fled... And that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. All right, so we're starting here, and if you remember 1 Samuel, we saw Saul chasing David all over the place here. We're just looking at the, the, the kingdom of Judah. So they introduced Saul because he was a king of, of Israel, and they talk about how he died, and this is... If you want to read this whole story, you can go to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 31, and it's virtually the same story with a couple of extra little details here and there. So it says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. This is the last battle for Saul. This is the one, if you remember, David was pretending to be on the side of the Philistines, and when they were getting ready to go to battle, he was all set to go to battle. And the leader said, no, you can't have David go with us. He might turn sides in the middle, middle of the battle. And David went back and this was the battle that Saul is going to die in. All right. He, and we learn later it was because of his disobedience that he dies. And we'll talk about that when we get to that section. And so they go, to, they go out there and the Philistines were following after Saul they managed to kill Jonathan, Abinadab, and Mikhai Shua. Those are Saul's three oldest sons. Jonathan was the crown prince. He was going to be the next in line after Saul. And God took the three next generations out, uh, of, out of the order of the king in the middle of this battle. And Paul, Paul, yeah, Saul... He's running away from the battle in the, you know, the chariot or however he is, and he gets hit by the archers. And so he takes, he takes a bunch of arrows, and he knows that he's going to die, and he tells his armor bearer, kill me. And it says in there, he says, kill me lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me or literally deal ruthlessly or wantonly with him. All right? What would happen is if you conquered a king in that day and age, you usually made their life miserable. If you remember the story in 2 Kings 25, Zedekiah was captured. And what did they do? They killed his sons in front of him. 
and then removed his eyes and then tied him up and drug him to, to Babylon to live in captivity the rest of his life. So they did all kinds of things to say, well, you're not worthy to be a king because you're not doing... This is what Saul is afraid of. He's afraid of them maybe killing the rest of his kids, you know, uh, making him abused, uh, making him do something that is not kingly and being forced to do it. And he says, you know, to a servant, kill me. And the servant, it says, was, his servant was afraid to do so. Now, it doesn't tell us why his, son, his servant wouldn't kill him. We don't know if maybe the servant respected the king so much that he was not going to willing to take his life, which is possible. It could be that he just had such honor and love for Saul that he could not bring himself to kill him. He could have also been looking at, if I kill him, I'm going to have a bad name for the rest of my days. We don't know what it is. I mean, it could have been any one of those or a combination of all of those. All right? uh, sometimes that love for somebody, though, would have caused him to say, well, no, I'm not going to let you suffer. I'm going to kill you. So we're not sure. It doesn't tell us why, but he was so afraid of this, he would not touch the king. And then it says, Saul fell on his sword. Literally just put his sword out there and fell down on it and died. This was the fear that Saul had. And Saul, if you remember from 1 Samuel, was getting worse and worse. First he started chasing David and his anger was toward David. He tried to throw a spear at David one time. Uh, tried to throw a spear at Jonathan one time because he said, Jonathan, you know, you're you're a perverse man. You're, you're, you're choosing this, this other over yourself. You know, he's going to take your kingdom from you. So he tried to pin Jonathan to a wall. Chases David all over Israel in his anger and bitterness. And yet when it comes down to it, still doesn't recognize that he is reaping the, sow, the seeds that he has sowed. He has sown all this evil he went and he did not kill Agag when he was told to kill Agag. He went to the witch of Endor. He pursues David, who's done him no harm, trying to kill him. He basically ignores all the other problems in the kingdom. And even in this battle, it was forced upon him when, when, the, Philist, when the Philistines attacked him. Just as he was ready to conquer David, the, Philist, the Philistines attacked and pulled him away from their, their battle. And this was his last battle. And this really goes to show where we can get to when we get into a depressed area or a disobedience against God, to where we just feel it would be better to die. Now, would God have been brought him back? I don't know. I mean, he's already been disciplined, so maybe not. But he had no trust in God at this point of his life. And it started, he started out so good. He started out as a humble man. He got anointed. He started prophesying. He went out with, you know, he started preaching and prophesying with God. He started, you know, he started out really well and he was doing good when he started. And then pride got into him. And then he got, then he started probably thinking, well, I'm king. I deserve all this. I, I am the ruler. I deserve all these things coming my way. And slowly ended up turning against God. And this is something that is very important for us to be very careful of. Sometimes success in life is the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. 
Because if we start depending on that success and enjoying that success, we can go pulling away from God just as Saul did. He got everything that anybody could ever want. He became king, ruler of the country, can have all the, all the, all the harem that he wanted, taxes, the best of the bakers, the best of the soldiers, and it went to his pride, to the place where he started worrying about David taking his place and, and, not, and not following God and, and having God say, I've rejected you because of the event at Agag, with Agag and the, and the uh, not killing him. But his servant, once he sees that Saul has killed himself, the servant kills himself. And again, I don't really understand this. Maybe he was worried, you know, that somebody would accuse him of killing Saul. Maybe he was worried that, you know, he was going to be uh, put to shame because of his being a servant to Saul. It doesn't tell us. In this case, it might be that he loved Saul enough to say, well, I'm going to die with you. Your sons have died. You're died. I'm going to die with you. And this is something that we don't really understand. But in the days of the knights and the, and the warriors and everything, their armor bearers drew very close to them. They're the one that provided them their sword and their weapons and took care of their armor, basically had their back. Uh, when Jonathan attacked the Philistines and he climbs up the mountain, his armor bearer was right behind him. Jonathan was killing people and the armor bearer was stabbing them as they, as they fell to the ground. He was making sure they were dead so nobody would get up behind him. That was the kind of relationship that the squire or the armor bearer would have with their master. Their master was teaching them to be a knight in training. Uh, so there was this relationship with him and a deep love he would have had and a relationship that he had with Saul. And now Saul's dead. And rather than live without Saul, he decides, I'm going to die. I'm just going to kill myself as well. Uh, and we don't know exactly what it was that did this. But verse 6 says, So Saul died, his three sons, and it says his house died altogether. Now this, uh, together with him, this does not mean every one of his children died. All right? And, but his house, his line, his royal reign dies at this point. There's going to be a few years after this, if you go into first, uh, Second Samuel, there's a period of civil war that First Chronicles skips over, right? Because they're not interested in all of that. They're interested in showing us David's reign, the Messiah's line. So they do not go into this. But when David first becomes king, he's king only in Hebron, and he is the king of Judah and Benjamin. The rest of Israel chooses one of Saul's sons to be king. And for a period of, there's civil war in Israel. And David is fighting Solomon, uh, man, I can't get the names right at all. Saul's family. And these sons are going to rise up against David and try to, try to take the kingdom in, in their dad's name. And so now the kingdom is going to be split. The ten, and in this case, it's kind of funny. The ten northern tribes join Saul's sons. Judah, which is David's tribe, and Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe, <laughs> come together to form David's group. And it's really bizarre that the tribe of Benjamin does not support Saul's children. Uh, and I've always thought that was strange, and I don't know why. I've no, I don't, nothing, nothing I have found was able to explain why 
the tribe of Benjamin supports David <laughs> instead of Saul's children. Yes. What did I say that's so funny? No. It's huh? It's oh, okay. They're not matching. <laughs> all right. So in this case, it says his, all his house died or his royal line died is what they're referring to. Now, it could also be looking at most of Saul's children are going to die in that civil war period of time. Uh, it's going to come later on that David is going to look and remember his promise to Jonathan to take care of his seed. And he's going to go... Is there any of Jonathan's descendants that I can honor? And they're going to find Meshivosheth to, to bring in to, to honor. Uh, so we have that whole pro process going on. Uh, and then it goes, and all the men of Israel, when they, they were in the valley, when they saw the king is dead, they fled. This is a pretty big deal. The king, the one who's leading you into battle, the army that he leads has been defeated by the enemy. So in the valley, there by Gilboa, which is toward the central north of the, of the country, the people see the enemy has conquered, and they basically run for their lives. They don't want to become made slaves. So they abandon their towns. And again, this is something we don't fully understand. It's kind of interesting, even in modern history, People care about what army conquers. At World War II, everybody wanted to be released by either the Americans or the British because they, they took care of, you know, they, they honored people, they took prisoners and, and treated them humanely. Nobody wanted to be rescued by the Russians because the Russians abused the people that they released. So there was all of this, and this is, this is what they were. They were afraid. If we get conquered... They're going to take us and make us slaves. They're going, to, they're going to take us out of our towns anyway, so we're just going to run from the town. And they left town, they left the, they left the valley, and the Philistines were able to conquer that entire area and take over those towns. Now, I don't believe that every single person ran away, but the majority of them did, because this is a big deal. All right? Verse 8. And it came to pass on the morrow that the Philistine, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And when they had stripped them, they took his head and his armor and sent it to the land of the Philistines around about to carry tidings to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the house of their gods, their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. All right. This sounds totally, totally gross to us, but it is what happened back then. First off, after the battle, they went out and they, and they used the word strip, but actually they're taking anything of value that they can find. Swords, slings, uh, jewelry, and for some reason people wore their jewelry to battle. I don't know why. Uh, you know, these guys would wear their earrings and their necklaces and everything. I guess it was to show how great they were and maybe scare people. You know, and how, how wealthy they were and how victorious they had been. Um, but they would go in and they would take everything. And, and during this period of 
looting the, the battlefield, they found King Saul and Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchua. And they got overjoyed. We have killed the king of Israel. This was a big deal. Kings were powerful. They were mighty. They were supposed to be protected by the gods of their nation. So to kill a king was a big celebration for them. And it says they took his armor and they cut his head off. And then they sent messengers all through Philistia saying, the king of Israel is dead. And probably were praising their king. And it doesn't, I don't know who their king was off the top of my head. I didn't look that up. But they're saying, you know, long live our king, you know, our king. We have finally defeated those Israelites. They've caused us nothing but trouble. Uh, they're the ones that killed Goliath, and we've killed them now. We've been victorious. We've, we, are now, we are now champions. And they send Saul's armor on a victory tour all through Philistia, city by city, you know, showing off his armor and his head. And finally, they get to the great, great uh, temple of Dagon, and it says they nailed his head, they, they fastened his head in the temple. Now, how would you like to go to church and, and, and be worshiping, and there's a, a, a head rotting on the wall? But that's what they did. And he had his, had his armor in there. Now, it doesn't tell us here, but the, the, in 1 Samuel 31, it tells us that they also took Saul's body and his son's bodies, and they hung them at the entrance of the town nearby to show victory. This, this, is, this was, again, something that sounds terrible to us, but that is what they did. We're victorious, we're going to take these leaders, we're taking these generals, we're taking these leaders, and we're hanging them from the wall by the gate so that everybody that goes in and out of this gate can see how wonderfully superior we are. We killed these leaders. And it doesn't tell us how long they were going to keep them there or anything else, but this is what they did. We are victorious. We're going to put these bodies out there. And again, every time you went in and out of this city, here's bodies hanging off the wall and and the people were, were rejoicing about this you know we have killed the leaders of Israel we have killed the king the king and the and the crown princes we, we've been victorious look at the there's their bodies they're not coming back this also was a way to desecrate the body especially for the Israelites because for the Israelites and even to this day in Israel you die you're buried that night by nightfall, all right? Because they, they're saying the body cannot be out after dark. So here is Paul, uh, Saul and his children. First off, it's the next day after the battle, so they're already past the day that they're supposed to be buried. And now their bodies are being hung from a wall on a city, desecrated. We're not going to let you bury these bodies. We're not going to let them be buried correctly and, and taken care of. This is an insult. This is a great insult. And this is part of what Saul was concerned about. They're going to abuse me. You know, now, he was concerned about being tortured as a lie, but, but they're not even letting his body be properly buried. And this is a big deal for the Jewish people. Their king cannot be buried. 
Now, they've all run away. There's no real battle. There's nobody to battle at this point. They've, they've run away. They've, they've, they're, they've uh, tucked tail and ran. The army's been defeated. So there's not much they can do, but if they're anywhere near that city, they see Saul, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Milukasha hanging on a wall, being, being celebrated by the residents of that city like we got them, they, they're, they're, they're taken care of. Paul's head is in the temple of Dagon. Huh? Or Saul. I keep saying Paul for some reason. Saul's head is in the temple of Dagon along with his armor. All right? And if you remember, what did they do with Goliath's sword? Because David went to the, to the temple and the priest said, you know, he goes, I need a sword. And they go, well, all we have is the sword of, of Goliath. So... This was not uncommon for the trophies of war when a, when a big leader or a valiant soldier was killed to put their trophies in amongst your God because you're celebrating our God delivered us. And this is what they're doing to Saul's body and his armor. Our God gave him to him and they marched him all around. They marched his head and his armor all around uh, uh, Philistia to show it off. We we have finally gotten rid of this pain in the neck nation over on the over on the side. We've got rid of their king. We have been victorious. And remember, he'd been victorious. Why? Because David kept beating the Philistines. Every time he went out, he'd beat the Philistines. Now that David wasn't there to beat them, they were victorious, and victorious all the way to killing the king. And we have this going on with this great show of praise to their God. They're praising their God. You know, we have beat the God of Israel. And, you know, we don't really fully understand that mentality, but this is a big deal to them. If you are in polytheism, your God beating another God was a big deal because your God just proved that he's stronger than that other God because all those gods were equal. They battled and fought each other up in the heavens. And now our God gave us victory. So we're, we're on the right side. They were on the wrong side. And we are victorious, and they're celebrating this. And, you know, it's going to be great victory for the Philistines and a great sorrow for the Israelites. God has let their king die in battle. This is, and remember, he's their first king. This is the first time they go, how can God let our king die? Right, he's the first king. He's the... He's the one that God chose. God chose him, remember. God anointed him as the first king. Even though we've talked about this way back, you know, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin and the king was supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. That was the prophecy of Jacob when he anointed his son and gave the blessings. He said, Judah, you, the scepter will come from you. And their first king comes from Benjamin, the youngest of the children and there's no record of God ever saying that a king would come out of that tribe. And yet the first king came out of Benjamin. Why? Because the people asked for the king. God didn't appoint the king. So it's fine. You want a king? I'll give you a king. But it's not going to be out of the tribe of Judah that it's supposed to. I'm going to give you a usurping king who's going to be from the wrong tribe, who's going to be a temporary king, even though they didn't fully understand that when he was the king. And Saul's pride hold of him. Now in verse 11, and when all 
of Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, they, rose, they arose all the valiant men and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his son and brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the oak at Jabesh and fasted for seven days. These guys are going to be blessed by David because they took care of Saul and Jonathan's bodies. They saw the abuse of their king. The abuse of these men that weren't able to be buried. And the brave men went to the city at night. I guess that they took a bunch of ladders or whatever. They cut down the bodies from the wall and took them back to Jabesh and buried them. This was a, you know, again, here's a big deal. All of Israel has fled. And the men of Jabesh Gilead decide we're going to rescue the bodies of our king and give them an honorable burial and put them where they belong. About two, two or three days too late, but they're, they're going out there and saying, we're going to take care of it. This was a big deal. The Philistines are flushed with victory. You know, they, if they had been caught, they would have been definitely tortured. But, you know, they're only a day or two outside of victory. I believe that the Trump was probably too drunk in their, in their festival and their celebration of victory to even know that these guys were coming. They were so sure that they had won and that nobody would come. When Babylon fell, the king was having a drunken party with his nobles and his generals while the Medo-Persian army had them encircled and, and they had them uh, besieged. And he was so sure that they were not ever going to get in that he and his leaders are all having a drunken party and the Medo-Persians get in underneath the, the sluice gate when they, they stop the river from flowing. All right? Uh, that's the kind of attitude that happened. They go, we beat them. They're, they're beat for a long time. We don't have to worry about them. I believe, I, it doesn't say this, but I believe they were busy having a nice celebration party. We won, we won. Uh, we're, their bodies are hanging there. Nobody's come to get them for the last 24 hours. We, we're here. And then these guys come in and take the bodies. So, and it appears that no guards saw them. Nobody was watching the bodies to make sure they didn't get taken away. And these guys come along and cut down the bodies and take them back home and they bury them. And, you know, this is a big deal. They're taking the body of their king back. If they could get to the head, they would have gone and got the head, but that's a little too far away for them, for them, because it's in, the, it's doing its victory tour in Philistia. And so this is going to be, they do what they can. They go out and they bring the body of Saul back. And they give him a proper burial. And this is a big deal. And verse 13 and 14 says, So Saul died for his transgressions which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking the counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it and inquired not of the Lord, therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. So here in the, in the two sentences is why did Saul die? He turned against God's word. As far as we understand, the primary turning against God's word was the battle early on in his career when he was to fight the Amalekites. He was to destroy all of them. He kept King Agag alive, and he kept some of the animals alive. And even before that was that he offered a sacrifice because Samuel was late in getting there. 
So he offered the sacrifice, which wasn't his job. He's king, not priest. He didn't obey God in the battle. And when Samuel came to see him, he goes, why didn't you obey God? And his first answer was, I did. I did everything God told me to do. Okay. How many times do people, maybe us even, say, God, I did everything you told me to do when we know we didn't do it? All right. And Samuel's first answer is, what is the bleeding of these these sheep and the mooing of these cattle. Uh, and if you remember, Saul's answer was still really dumb. He goes, the people kept it, kept them so that we could sacrifice to God. He goes, it's not my fault. I couldn't stop the people from doing this. All right. And then he goes, and why is Agag still alive? Agag comes out of this thinking, he, okay, I've got my life spared. I'm going to be okay. And Samuel grabs a sword and hacks him to pieces. Because he said, God said he's to die. So Agag thought he'd gotten away with it. You know, maybe he, maybe he was telling Saul how he could teach him to be a king or whatever. I don't know. But Saul was going to let him live. And Sam, Samuel killed him. That was the big one. That was the big one. And he said, at this point, God has turned from you. God will no longer hear you. And from that point on, Saul got progressively worse now, why did he say this? Could Saul have been able to repent and turn to God? Probably could have, but God knew that he would not. This is the idea that God knows our future before it even happens. So he was able to say, Saul, you're not going to repent anyway, so I'm, I'm turning my back on you completely. We go back to Pharaoh in the Exodus. Pharaoh hardened his heart the first four or five times, and then it says God hardened his heart. Why? Because God knew that he was not going to relent. So God says, fine, you're not going to. I'm just going to make your heart even harder than you, than you wanted because you, he knew that he was not going to relent. He said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And this is while they were in the womb. Esau hasn't done anything to, do, to have God hate him, and God says, I hate him. Why? Because he knew that Esau was going to rebel against against him and this is one of the things for us that god knows our future and i love this god is so powerful that i don't have to worry about what's going on because he goes i un- i know i know the beginning from he knows everything that's going to happen to me he knows everything i'm going to do he knows everything that people are going to say and do against me or, or for me he knows it all and he is in control. And he can change the direction if he wants. Because he knows what is going to happen. And he will respond accordingly. And so here we see, and then he says, the second reason is that you inquired of one that had a familiar spirit. That was the witch of Endor, right, to, right before this battle. He is so distraught because he hasn't heard from God. Uh, Samuel has a di- Samuel has died. No priest is speaking for him. God is not speaking to him. God is not apparently speaking to the high priest for him. And so he decides he's going to go to the witch of Endor who controlled familiar spirits or the spirits of the dead, supposedly. And she goes, well, who do you want me to call? And he goes, call up Samuel. She said, no way. And he said, do it. And that is one of the most interesting stories in the Bible because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet, 
it appears that Samuel showed up to them. And we do, one thing we do know is that these people that talk to familiar spirits are talking to demons. They're not talking to the ghost of somebody. So what happened there, we don't know. Did God make a demon appear as Samuel? Did, did God use a special special? It's one of those crazy ones that doesn't match anything else in Scripture. And it's one of those hard things to even comprehend. But Samuel showed up, or something that looked like Samuel showed up and said, why are you calling me? God has rejected you. And his message was that you're going to die. And now he's in total despair and goes into this battle. You know, and I think going into this battle, Sam, Saul knew that everything was turned against him. God said, you are going to die. I think he went into this battle expecting to die. And that's not a good thing for your leader to expect to be dying. You're not going to in, in, uh, in, in danger, uh, engender any, any goodwill in your people when you're sure that you're going to die and it's a losing cause. And so he went in knowing that he was going to lose. And he says, you inquired of a familiar spirit, something dead rather than the living God. And this is something for us to be something to look at. Are we, when we need a decision, going to the living God? Are we going to God and praying to God, the living God? Are we going to his word, the living word? Now, there are people that will go to the Bible and just flip it open. God's saying as if it's a special, special magical book, and they'll flip it open and, and, and say, well, this is my word. All right, and I've told you all the joke, and it's a funny one. You know, somebody studying the Bible, and it says, you know, he goes to this verse of the day, and he opens it up and says, and Judas killed himself. And he goes, that can't be my verse. And he goes, um, flips it open, and he goes, go and do likewise. <laughs> opens up his Bible again and says, what you do, do quickly. <laughs> okay? Now, all those verses are not about your life, okay? But... It is, and all those were verses out of the Bible, okay, that, that come out of the Bible. So we want to be careful. Are we living, looking at a living word from a living God, or are we using it as some magic book? You know, this is the thing, even with prayer. Are we praying to God, or are we just saying words? And this is something I know has happened in, in people. I know people that will go up front, they'll say a prayer of salvation. Lord, I'm a sinner. I know Jesus died for me. Come into my life and save me. And they don't mean the words. There's no meaning behind it. They don't trust in the words. They're not trusting in Jesus. Did they get saved? No, they just said words. They, they said, abracadabra, I'm saved. <laughs> and it doesn't work that way. I have to go in and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I deserve punishment and I know that Jesus died for my sins. Come in and make me your child and know that I know that I believe those words and I'm putting my trust in it. That is what makes us come to God. And there are times that people have just said quick prayers. Foxhole salvations, foxhole prayers. God, if you just deliver me from this problem, I am going to be... Your servant, I will go be a pastor. I will go, I will give all my possessions to you. And then you forget about it as soon as you get out of, the, out of it because it wasn't a real, real prayer. It was just, you know, this is my convenience prayer. 
we need to be careful that we don't do that kind of a prayer. That we are really seeking God with our prayer. And this is what God says. You inquired not of the Lord, so he got slain with his sons. And this is the consequence. Saul lost his life. His sons, his three oldest sons, lost their life because of his disobedience to lose the kingdom. Because this is a really serious thing. And David, David and Jonathan understood it. David, Jonathan was ready to step down and give David the throne. But would the people have allowed it? Probably not. Jonathan was a popular prince. The people probably would not have let David take the position if Jonathan had lived. Because the people loved David. He was a mighty warrior. He, he was almost as victorious as David in battle. He went to battle and, and he won. David went to battle and he won. Saul, depending on what mood he was in, won or lost. And Jonathan was very popular with the people. They probably would not have accepted David as king if Jonathan had lived. So because of the sins of Saul, Jonathan had to die. And that's hard, to, hard for us to picture, hard for us to understand. But how many times have we sinned and seen the consequence hit somebody else around us? All right, And it happens all the time. We sin and somebody else suffers. Oftentimes a family member, the, the workaholic does not spend time with their family and their family suffers. They may have lots of stuff because of their working so hard but they suffer with the lack of relationship with their parent. The person gets into drugs and alcohol and sells everything and, and you know, pulls away from their family. Worse yet, they go out and they get in trouble you know, with the law for some reason, either by stealing or, or killing somebody. And the family suffers because of the sins of that individual. This is a serious thing. Now, God redeems those losses. He can go, I can redeem those because he is God. But there's still a hurt. There's still a loss that has to be, be gone through. And this is a serious loss. Three of Saul's sons die because of his disobedience. You know, and I just want to have that sink into us because this is a big deal for us that it cost a great deal because of Saul's sin. Not only that, you have an entire army that has gone out. They've lost their life because of Saul's sin. Cities have been conquered because of Saul's sin. Does sin have consequences that we can't even begin to expect sometimes? Now, most of us are never going to have a consequence that's going to affect the nation and, and cities, but we do affect our children, we do affect our businesses, we do affect our churches, we do affect those are in our neighborhood by our sin. And it's a critical thing to sin. This is why we need to see sin the way God sees it. It's awful. It's terrible. It needs to be avoided at all cost. And too many Christians even play at how close can I get to the sin before I've crossed the line. Well, if you're thinking that way, you've already crossed the line. Because Jesus said, if you think the, about the sin, you've done it. So it's not, okay, how close can I get to, to adultery before I've committed adultery? Not how close can I get to fornication before I've crossed the line? Not how close, how many drinks can I take before I'm into drunkenness? You know, 
It's none of that. We can do anything. We have perfect liberty if we can do things with a clear conscience. If you have any doubt on whether you can do something or not, in your heart, in your mind, the answer is you can't. And I've had people all the time, they come up, well, you know, I've been reading my Bible, can I do such and such? And I'm going, the answer for you is no. You're already doubting it, otherwise you would never have asked the question. As soon as you have doubt in your heart that it's something that you can do, it's sin. And it doesn't matter whether somebody else could do it or not. Because if they have liberty and they're not bothered by it, it's not sin for them. This is what Paul told the Corinthians. He goes, you are having problems with meat offered to idols. All right? The best meat that they could buy was the market down at the bottom of the, the hill after they offered the meat to the, to the gods. They would sell the meat to people to eat. And it was good meat because the best of the, best of the animals were sacrificed. And Paul says, it's no problem. If you, if you know that that's a hunk of wood and a, and a bunch of gold and you're not worried about anything offered to it and it doesn't bother you, eat the meat. There were others that had trouble with it, especially people who got saved that used to worship that idol. They're still struggling, struggling with that's not a god and now I'm going to eat the meat that was offered to it. And they had problem with it. And Paul says, for you, don't eat it. It's a problem. For many of the Jews, they, they looked at it as defiled defiled meat. They would not eat it because it had been offered to another, to another deity even though they didn't recognize it as a deity. And Paul said if you can eat it without a conscience bothering you, no problem. It was just offered to a hunk of, hunk of wood with gold covering it. He goes, if it bothers you, don't eat it. And then he went even further. He goes, if you're eating it and it bothers somebody that's around you, don't eat it because you don't want to cause them to sin or, and that sin would be to judge you or to be tempted to do something that they felt they couldn't do. And so all of this comes down to sin having great consequence. And we see this consequence here. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Moreover, in time past, even when Saul was king, you were he that led led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord your God said unto you, You shall feed my people, Israel, and you shall be ruler over my people. Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now, again, this has taken some time and skipped over a whole section in 2 Samuel of the Civil War. All right. After Saul died, there's a period of time where David is reigning in Hebron and Saul's children are reigning with the over the other 10 tribes and there's a civil war going on. And it takes Saul's general who gets mad at, at one of David, uh, Saul's sons for wrong reason. The, the son feared the general and the general was laying with the concubine of Saul which belonged to the, to his, to the son and he challenged him, and the general got so mad at him and said, fine, I'm going to deliver all of the tribes to Israel, to David. So after years of civil war, the king, the general goes down to David and says, I can deliver all the tribes to you. You can be king of all of Israel. 
All, and he had one condition. He wanted to be David's general. Didn't go over with David, well with David's general, uh, who ended up killing him. All right, and that's all in First uh, Second Samuel. So we're not going to not going to follow all that. We taught that already at a point in time, but all of a sudden, a couple years, a few years after Saul dies, all the leaders of Israel come down to David and said, "We want you to be our king." We're basically we're tired of the civil war. We're tired of all this battles. Matter of fact, all of our our king. king losing battles we we're losing men every time you go to war you're winning we're losing handwriting on the wall uh we just surrender we're going to be we want you to be our king uh, and they all came down and david made a covenant with them he agreed to be their king if they would be, allow him to be their be their king so now david is going to be the king of the unified nation and so in verse four and David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which, was, which is Zebus, where the Zebusites were and the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of the Jebus said to David, You shall not come hither. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. And David said, Whoever smites the Jebusites first shall be chief captain. So Joab, the son of Zariah, went first up and was chief. And David dwelt in the castle thereof. Thereof they called it, therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city around about, even from Milo around about, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. And David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of the hosts was with him. So when David gets all ten tribes, he goes and attacks Jebu, which later on is going to become Jerusalem. It belongs to the Jebusites at this time. Now Jerusalem is up on a high mountain with cliffs around it. It is not a city that is easily taken, even though it has been taken a few times. It is not a city that is easily taken. It's got mountains on one side that you cannot climb up on, and you can basically just surround it on three sides, and it's got a thick, heavy wall. And it was that way when David went to take it. And David marches up with all of Israel and... It's kind of interesting that it says the inhabitants of the land said to David, you shall not come in this city. It had a reputation of being unconquerable. And David wanted that city. All right. And David, and he's going to take it. And it says David took the city and the castle of, of Zion, which is what it's later on called Zion, the city of God and the inhabitants of the land, and it's called the city of David once he conquers it. He's going to make it the capital of Israel. Is going to be in Jerusalem. This is kind of a smart move on his, on his part because it's close to Judah. It's, it's in Judah, but it's close to Benjamin. It's in the center of Israel, so everybody should be happy with this centralized headquarters for the, for the nation. And David made a statement. He goes... Whoever strikes the leader's dead and takes this city will be, the, be, the, be my general. All right? And uh, Joab, his cousin, is going to be, a nephew, is going to be the one that takes the city. They're motivated. Whoever gets to be victorious in this battle is going to be promoted. All right? Very much, if you remember when David went to fight Goliath, do you remember what the prize was for going to fight Goliath? They, they were going to get Saul's daughter 
in marriage where they're going to be made a member of the royal family. They were going to be, their family was going to be able to live tax-free, and they were going to be honored. That was quite an honor. David's doing the same type of thing. He says, hey, I'm now king. Whoever, whoever takes, my, takes this city for me, you'll be my general. That got people motivated. If I want to be the general, all I got to do is be the first one up there to kill, kill these guys and conquer the city. And Joab leads a group up there to do just that. He ends up leading this city. And Joab is going to be the one that is victorious. And Joab has already been leading David's army, and now he's going to make it official that he has gotten it by royal decree. And so he conquered, they conquered this city, and it says David dwelt in the castle thereof, and, he, and therefore it was called the city of David. And it to this day is called the city of David. It is David's headquarters. It is where he was established the royal throne. It is also where he is going to bring the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant is going to come to Jerusalem. And later on, Solomon is going to build the great temple in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jews are waiting for the third temple to be built in Jerusalem. And there, all of that is going on. And it's all this battle. David says, whoever conquers this is going to be my general. And they conquered the un unconquerable city. <laughs> and this city is not going to be conquered again until Babylon comes along. And Babylon the Great is going to conquer it because of the sins of the children of Israel. And that's going to be four or five hundred years later that it's going to be conquered again. So it is a city that doesn't get conquered very often. All right. The next conquering after Babylon is going to be when the Romans conquer it another six, eight hundred years later than the Romans conquer it. And uh, since then it has not been Israel's until recently to be conquered again. So this city is now David's city. And it says that David dwelt there, and it says he built the city around about, even from Milo around about. So David rebuilds the walls that they, what they had to destroy coming in, and he builds up a city around the walled castle. So if you go to Jerusalem, even to this day, there's the, the inner city with the great wall, the pieces of the great wall, and then the outer city where people lived. And any time that these nations would attack these walled cities, the people would leave the outside of the city, get inside the walls to be protected. All right? And we've talked about this in the past. They would also have citadels all over. And the citadel was a tower or a small castle. If you couldn't make it all the way back to the walled city, you would run to these, these citadels, these towers, these, these small castles, and defend yourself in those castles. They'd have a small group of army in it. They'd be, they would be set up with weapons in it and food in them. And your idea was you would hold out long enough to get to the, to the real city where you'd be protected. Uh, so David is building this city, and it says that Joab repaired the rest of the city. So he's, he's working on part of the city that had been destroyed. And it says... And David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of the host was getting stronger. He kept being victorious. He kept winning battles. More and more people kept coming to his side and his aid. Uh, 
the tw 10 tribes have come to him, the leaders of them, but overall then people started coming to him. Because it's hard to just switch sides. You know, for years, they were Saul's people. Then they were Saul's son's people, even though he was losing battles. Now all of a sudden they got to choose to follow David. Their leader said, we're following David. But you know what? Just because leaders say something does not mean that the people always follow. There's always the problem of, are you going to follow? Now, when it's a good change, it's a good thing to follow your leaders. When it's a bad change, it's a good thing to, to, to do civil disobedience, you know, legal civil disobedience. And watch what God is going to do. And in this case, they conquered Jerusalem and more and David gets stronger and stronger. Saul's sons get weaker and weaker uh, and get less and less people. They've already lost their general. They've lost, they lost everything. And they're, they're weaker and weaker and David's getting stronger with every, every day. And we're going to stop there on verse 9 and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this. Lord, help us to first off understand the consequences of sin are great but also to understand that the consequences of obedience to you also have rewards and great blessing as well. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us, so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.